This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. In San Francisco, the area south of Market Street is called Soma. The part of town north of the Panhandle is known as Nopa. Just north of our office is a part of town that Oakland is trying to brand as Kono, short for Koreatown Northgate. But no one actually calls it that. I live in a part of town at the intersection of North Oakland, Berkeley, and Emeryville, a neighborhood real estate brokers are calling Nobi. That's producer Avery Truffleman. The whole Nobi thing makes me feel pretty icky. These abbreviated neighborhood names are such cliches. Like there's that episode of South Park where part of town gets rebranded as South of Downtown South Park or Sodo Sopa. There's a certain quality, vibe, and energy that is Sodo Sopa. From the independent merchants and unique cafes to the rustic charm of a mixed income crowd. In an episode of How I Met Your Mother, two characters buy an apartment in Doe Citripla. Doe Citripla. Oh, I see. You're not New Yorkers. Oh, oh. No, actually, we live on the Upper West Side. No need so. to be embarrassed. Listen, here in New York, we just shorten the names of all the neighborhoods. Soho, Tribeca, Nolita. Uh, oh, right. Doe Citripla. No, I'm, I'm from New York. I know this neighborhood. Doe Citripla turns out to be short for Downwind of the Sewage Treatment Plant. There are brokers who are renaming parts of Harlem as Soha, parts of Little Italy as Nolita, marketing the Bronx as Sobro. This is Congressman Hakeem Jeffries. He represents New York's 8th Congressional District, which is Brooklyn and parts of Queens. These are names that are created out of thin air. They're fantasy. They're fiction. They're made up solely, in my view, to artificially inflate prices. Before Congressman Jeffries was elected to the House of Representatives, he was a member of the New York State Legislature, and he saw these neighborhood abbreviations creep into his jurisdiction. Real estate brokers were renaming parts of Crown Heights as Procro. That's Procro, P-R-O-C-R-O. Which is a combination, apparently, of the Prospect Heights neighborhood and Crown Heights to its east. Properties in Prospect Heights have generally sold for more than those in Crown Heights, by making this new neighborhood, Procro, brokers could sell Crown Heights properties at Prospect Heights prices. Congressman Jeffries did not like anything about this. He didn't like the sound of Procro, and he didn't like what the name was trying to do. So he tried to stop it. When we researched the issue, uh, it turned out that there was no sort of governmental entity involved in the designation of neighborhoods. In 2011, Jeffries proposed the Neighborhood Integrity Act, which set out to create guidelines and regulations for new neighborhood names and boundaries. But it turned out that it's hard to pass a law against names. The Neighborhood Integrity Act didn't gain traction, but neither did the name Procro. Well, I should point out, some uh, names don't stick. Procro was just silly, and thankfully, uh, it was abandoned. You never really know which of these names will stick around. Like there's this part of Midtown Manhattan that was recently renamed Nomad for north of Madison Avenue. And people are starting to use it. You can see it on Google Maps. And it's weird. There's not really a name for this naming convention. Like NoHo, SoBro, Noma. They're not quite acronyms. They're not quite portmanteau. They're not just abbreviations. Around the office, we've been calling them acronames. Or if you want to get in the spirit of the thing, ACNAs. ACNAs is too much. That's not going to be a thing. Fine. They're acronames. And they trace their lineage back to Soho, 
short for South of Houston Street in New York. It's really interesting how Soho developed first as a local neighborhood brand and then became globalized. Sharon Zukin is a professor of sociology at Brooklyn College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. You have neighborhoods of Boston and Washington, D.C. and Seattle and Denver, abbreviated as Lodo, Sodo, Soma, Sowa, trading on the brand name of Soho. Now, there already was a Soho district in London, but as the illusionist's Helen Zaltzman will tell you, that is not an acronym. Most of the evidence points to it having been a hunting cry, Soho, like tally-ho, because Soho stands on what used to be hunting land. Other people will tell you that Soho is a shortening of South of Hoburn, but those people are willfully ignoring the fact that Soho is actually west of the area of Hoburn, which would make Soho WeHo, which it isn't. London's Soho may have been first, but the American abbreviation of Soho and the birth of the acronym can be traced back to 1962 and a fellow by the name of Chester Rapkin. He was an urban planner and eventually a member of the New York City Planning Commission from the late 60s to the late 1970s. And he was asked to investigate the conditions in what he called, or what the City Planning Commission called, the South Houston Industrial Area. A lot of people think that the resulting paper, known as the Rapkin Report, invented the term Soho. Now, I have recently reread that report, and I do not believe that Rapkin used the term Soho in that report. It's also been said that Rapkin coined the term Soho in conversation. However it happened, around this time... People seized upon the term Soho as an abbreviation. Which was certainly better than the South Houston Industrial Area, but not nearly as badass as its previous name, Hell's Hundred Acres. In the 1950s and early 60s, Soho was zoned for industrial manufacturing, but a lot of the buildings were empty. At the time Rapkin was writing the report, it was not the most pleasant part of town. He mentioned in passing the grim caverns of factory buildings in Soho, and that's absolutely true. The South Houston industrial area was threatened with demolition. The brick buildings with cast iron facades were seen as ugly, outdated eyesores. I mean, they were factories, smack in the middle of downtown Manhattan. There had been a major pressure on the part of city government, as well as probably the real estate industry, to demolish these worthless buildings and replace them with one of the new residential projects. This was in the early 60s, when New York City, under the influence of Robert Moses, was trying to tear down and rebuild. They were wrecking ball happy. But the Rapkin report made a plea to preserve the factory buildings, and the city held off on their plan. Rapkin said the manufacturers in those buildings were viable, and it would be interesting, maybe even great, if the manufacturing buildings were renovated for manufacturing use. Nobody foresaw that the area would become colonized by artists. Artists rented the manufacturing spaces for studios, and to save money, they lived there too. Soho in the 1970s 
quickly gained the identity of an artist district. But the lofts weren't supposed to be residential. They weren't up to city housing standards, state standards, fire codes, anything. For a while, the city skirted around this problem by classifying artists as machines who manufactured art and could thus stay in the factories overnight. Performers and painters and musicians hosted happenings and art openings out of their lofts, and these attracted attention from arts publications and newspapers. Soho was, if not the very first industrial district to be transformed into live-work and living space, it was certainly the most prominent in the media. After the success of Soho, the urban planning department wanted to do on purpose what had happened by accident in Soho. They set their sights on a nearby area, the Triangle Below Canal Street, or as they called it, Tribeca. Tribeca was also a former manufacturing district, but it was intentionally rezoned for mixed use. So now factories and residences and galleries could exist side by side legally. You know the story from here. Artists moved into the old lofts, made them seem hip and desirable, and higher income residences and businesses slowly took over. And now, of course, Soho and Tribeca are fancy, fancy places, full of boutiques and high-end residences, all housed in the architectural skeletons of old industry. Soho was able to incubate and disseminate all of these trends that became so important in interior design in the 80s and 90s and, you know, probably on into the 2000s. Soho and Tribeca weren't just the rise of acronames. They were the birth of industrial chic. They created the whole aesthetic that comes to mind with these neighborhoods. In Soho, artists embraced the vestiges of the factories they were living and working in. They found the big metal fixtures and beams and loading docks charming. And this became a kind of expensive minimalism that marked high-status taste in interior design. Exposed brick walls, distressed floors, big windows, large open spaces, big beams and bronze fixtures. The old factories became trendy. And new, wealthier residents added layers of conventional luxury. Now people install very expensive marble baths and floors and wine vaults into former industrial lofts so that the simplicity of the first generation of industrial chic has turned into the excess of the current multi-million dollar lofts. Lofts in these genuine old buildings now go for millions of dollars, and new condos and developments are actively trying to look like old warehouses. And in other parts of New York and other cities around the world, developers started to copy Soho, not just in industrial areas, but in all kinds of neighborhoods, independent of whoever was already living or working there. Real estate developers around the world copy this, and they say, let's bring some stores, let's, let's encourage some performance spaces, some art galleries, let's make this area interesting, let's give it a name. And as time went on, a new name, especially an acronym, became the big indicator that your neighborhood was about to change. What we're seeing is something of an era of gentrification. This is Jacqueline Huang a postdoctoral research fellow at Princeton University. In 2006, she did a comprehensive study of residents in a section of South Philadelphia, 
where she basically went up to them and asked, what do you call your neighborhood? So in this section of Philly, um, most of the minority residents referred to it as South Philly. But not the new mostly white residents and the real estate agents and Craigslist posts that listed the properties. Most commonly, they used the name Graduate Hospital, so named because a hospital used to be in that neighborhood. Other people have referred to it as Jiho, Soso, which is supposed to represent South of South Street. Even if they groaned or laughed at Jiho or Soso, these newcomers really identified more with Graduate Hospital than South Philly. Now, just to be clear, neighborhoods do shift and change names periodically. But Jacqueline says the recent naming rush is different. I would say that there's an intention behind this and sort of a power um, play happening. You know, there's a group that's redefining it while another group is trying to hold on to this older name. As cities boom and gentrification rises, new neighborhoods get made and new names proliferate. I'm not saying neighborhood change is not good for these neighborhoods. They certainly need the investment. But I think the idea that there's this alienation that's taking place and that, you know, it's intentional of displacing and devaluing the previous name in order to make the neighborhood change faster. This gets at the ickiness I feel about using the term noby to describe where I live. I don't want to be the newcomer who alienates the old residents by using some term that was fed to me by real estate developers. But noby is also useful because it's specific and it's efficient. I mean, saying I live in noby is obviously faster than saying I live at the border of North Oakland, Berkeley, and Emeryville. Well, I live in, in Doby. Uh, which is downtown Berkeley. I just made up the name Doby. That is comedian and longtime Bay Area resident W. Kamau Bell. I was thinking about my neighborhood and gentrification when I happened to run into him, appropriately, at the South Berkeley Farmer's Market. I know they call it the South Berkeley Farmer's Market, but I've lived in the Bay Area long enough to remember when this was called Oakland right here. This feels like South, 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 South Berkeley. Kamau feels uncomfortable with these acronyms, too. Kono, which they're trying to make downtown. Kono, what is that? Koreatown Northgate. Kono? Kono. Oh, no. (laughs) But he says if you're focused too much on neighborhood names, you might be missing the point. This is just symptomatic of, like, this is like, the the neighborhood name is like the old log in the woods, and you lift up the neighborhood name and you see all the bugs underneath, and that's that's gentrification. If you get too focused on the name, you're probably not focused on what's going on under the wood. Acronyms are easy to lampoon. They're ubiquitous to the point of parody and often cringeworthy. So we may see a shift away from these names. Real estate developers will start using less silly sounding names to market neighborhoods to higher paying customers. These names might sound more authentic like Graduate Hospital in Philly or Temescal in Oakland, but they're different names for the same thing. The same log over the ants of gentrification. And as far as what you should call your neighborhood, if you're a newcomer? I mean, I feel like the the bigger issue is to respect the neighborhood you're moving into. If you respect the neighborhood you're moving into and you aren't trying to be the change, you're trying to be the blend, then you should, then whatever the people in the neighborhood call it, then call it that. So I took Kamau's advice. I walked around my block and I asked people, what do you call this neighborhood? And I met a few newcomers like me who were just as confused as I was. Was it Nobi? Was it the Ashby-Bart region, the Golden Gate District, the Lauren District? But the neighbors who've lived here for a while all said the same thing. It's just North Oakland. And really, 
It doesn't need to be called anything else. <laughs> can I put you on 99? Can I, can I use this tape? What are you talking, are you talking about? This is so great. Can you put me on 99% Invisible? <laughs> Hashtag life goals. 99% Invisible was produced this week by Avery Truffleman with Katie Mingle, Sam Greenspan, Delaney Hall, Kurt Colstead, Sharif Youssef, and me, Roman Mars. Special thanks this week to Jeff Bliss, Tim Wong, W. Kamal Bell, and Helen Zaltzman. You should already be downloading Helen's Radiotopia podcast, The Illusionist, on your favorite podcasting app. But if not, take this opportunity to remedy that. Kamal Bell hosts a new radio show and podcast called Kamal Right Now, which I highly recommend. It's a live talk show based here in the Bay. It's produced by KALW, the greatest radio station in the world. We are a project of 91.7 KALW San Francisco and produced out of the offices of ArcSign, an architecture and interiors firm in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. 99% Invisible is supported by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses at a shockingly fair price. Sometimes my friends pull me aside and they ask, do you really like your Casper that much? And my answer is, yes, I really do. Not only that, they sent me a Casper pillow, and it's the best pillow I've ever had, too. They have a risk-free trial and return policy, so try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. The mattresses are made in America, and pricing is just $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size mattress. 99% Invisible listeners can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash 99PI and using the offer code 99PI at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. 99% Invisible is supported in part by Squarespace. Whether the story behind your passion is out of the ordinary or simply out of this world, you should tell it in an unforgettable way. Squarespace helps you do just that with the only websites designed to showcase what makes your passion worth pursuing. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com invisible. You should. Squarespace. And finally, this enterprise and Radiotopia from PRX have had the great good fortune of being supported by MailChimp. This week on the 99PI MailChimp newsletter, Fact Follows Fiction. The crazy story of fictional European bridges featured on the Euro banknote made real in a park in Rotterdam. It's really cool, but it's not an audio story. You have to read it. You can get all the stories from the show, both audio and visual, in the newsletter. You can subscribe at 99pi.org, but if you want to send better email of your own, go to MailChimp.com. You can find the show and join the fine community of people who like this show on Facebook. I fave every 99PI coin I see on Twitter and Instagram. Every single one of them makes me happy when I see them. So please keep sending them in. But if you want to explore the 99% invisible activity that shapes the design of our world, I recommend you spend some time perusing 99PI.org. Radio Tokyo.